open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 1, and we'll go at it at a snail's pace once again and see what we see here, knowing that there's more to the passage than what we'll get to today. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. May the Lord add his blessing to those who read and hear and then seek to do this word. So here's the question, what happened to John, right? What happened to John? Am I a little echoey today? Do I sound like I'm in a tunnel? I think it sounds awesome up here. Um, I feel very powerful, right? Uh, What happened to John? You know, look at this. If you read this for the first time or were hearing it for the first time, you'd be wondering what in the world happened to John? The last time we heard from John, from him, this is a guy who had a very successful ministry. People were coming to him in the desert in droves after nearly 400 years of silence. And then all of a sudden, Mark just say, after John was arrested. Okay? You're like, what happened to John? What did he do? He was successful. Now he's arrested. And the word that Mark used in this word literally means to be delivered up over to detention. Okay? It means to be subject to detention by an authority figure. Do they still do detention in school these days? Anybody? Anybody back in the day when you had detention? All right? Anybody remember those days? Right? Some of you are like, yeah, I don't want to admit it. But yeah, right? He got himself in trouble with the man, so to speak. Right? He's doing the successful ministry, but then the powers in those days, in John's days, didn't like what he was doing, and he didn't like what he did or what he was willing to say, and so they detain him. And actually, when you get to chapter 6, you're going to see what they did with him once he was detained. But you'll see the writing style of Mark here. We're going to get into a major theme here in a second. But Mark just kind of throws this passing comment in that gives evidence to his great storytelling ability. He hooks you. We know, we know the rest of the story with John, but he just says, oh, after John was arrested, and you're like, what happened to John? And honestly, it makes you begin to wonder if John got himself in trouble and he was arrested, then what's going to happen to the one who is mightier than him? That's why John puts this detail in there. If they did what they did to John the Baptist, what might they be willing to do to the one who comes after John the Baptist, whose sandals John was not worthy to stoop down and untie? What happens to John here foreshadows in a mysterious, cryptic way what's going to happen to Jesus. And we know the rest of the story, but if I was telling you this story for the first time, the hair on the back of your neck would have stood up. And a chill would have gone down your spine when you found out that John the Baptist, the most successful prophet in 400 years, just got arrested. That's not good. And honestly, the next time you see that word to be arrested or delivered up, do you know the next time it comes in, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark? 
It comes from Jesus, the protagonist in the story. In his mouth, he says this. He gathers, though he's teaching those who are gathered around him, and he says this. The Son of Man, in chapter 9, is going to be delivered up into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And you're like, whoa. So, so Mark starts this off at the beginning of chapter 1, and then he's going to pick it up in chapter 9. It's like, what happens to John is it's a small foretaste of what's going to happen to Jesus. And we're going to get there eventually, but before we do that, Mark just kind of gives us this massive cliffhanger moment in the first chapter by saying, now after John was arrested. And you can see the beauty of the story. And he says this, now after John was arrested, he, Jesus, came into Galilee. Now, Galilee is going to prove to be a very important place in this gospel narrative, and we'll talk more about Galilee in a few weeks. But for now, Jesus comes into Galilee, and he proclaims the gospel of God. It's the good news of God's victory that has come about. And remember, we talked about this last week. I'm sorry for the slow start to this sermon series, but there's so much to unpack in chapter 1. Remember what John the Baptist, the forerunner, said last week. He said, get ready, get set, God is coming. And now Jesus shows up and says, the gospel of God is here. John speaks of it as if it is coming. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. Look at it. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. God's decisive moment, decisive action to have an encounter with his people is unfolding right before these Galilean eyes. Here it is. The critical moment of God's work in the world was happening now in real time. The promise of an ultimate redemption had reached the time of fulfillment, and the kingdom of God was at hand. So what we want to do today is we want to take time to Reader's Digest version, unpack what the kingdom of God is. We want to talk about the unfolding kingdom of God today, and that's all as far as we're going to get in the text. There's, there's so much more we could say that we're actually not going to get to. We'll move on. But the kingdom of God is the concept of the entire Bible, okay? So you can imagine my dilemma this week when I saw the phrase, Hey, Basilea tu theu in the scripture today, you know? In this passage, I read this, I'm like, oh my goodness, how am I going to teach the entire Bible in one sermon? You're like, I hope he doesn't, right? Well, here's my Reader's Digest version of what this phrase means, and we'll explain why we took so much time to unpack it. The long and short of this overarching, overarching theme of the kingdom of God is this. And this is going to be a mouthful. The kingdom of God in scripture is this. God, the creator king, exercising his kingly rule over his creation through the efforts of obedient humans made in his image to bring the creation to a state of future glory. And you're like, what? Can you repeat that? No. All right? There's a lot there. Go back and listen to the podcast or maybe we'll send it out. But God, 
the creator king exercising his kingly rule over his creation through the efforts of obedient humans made in his image in order to bring all of creation to a state of future glory. That's what the kingdom of God is. That is a packed sentence that literally takes 757,439 words to unpack. That's how many words are in the ESV translation, all right? Normally, a normal sermon that's 30 minutes long is about 4,000 words. So you do the math. How much time do we got today, right? But let's unpack what we mean by kingdom of God. And I think what you see here is just going to flabbergast you. So listen, this is an intensive topic. It's, it's, it's weighty. And you're going to have to track, this is a little bit more theological than some sermons, you're going to have to track it and trace it along with me, but it really starts in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1 and 2, God is depicted in Genesis 1 and 2 as the creator king, who by his omnipotence and by his word in six days creates all things out of nothing. And at the end of that sixth day, God says that what he had brought about out of the formless, chaotic void was very good. And God sets up boundaries for light and for dark, from land, from water, so on and so forth. And then he actually names those realities. He said, you're going to be called day, you're going to be called night, you're going to be called earth, and you'll be known as the sea. And what we see here in Genesis 1 and 2 is God possessing the capacity to create and call things what they are. And so God, the creator king, sets up a creation with order and dominion. So for instance, if you look at day four, day four of the creation account in Genesis 1, 16 through 18, and God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. I love that little phrase, and the stars. By the way, and all the stars, right, that James Webb is telling us about. God just made them. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule, that's the word mashal, over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. If you step outside today, surprisingly, you can see the sun, right? Even though we live here in the Pacific Northwest. Even though sometimes here in the Pacific Northwest, it's hard for us to see the sun, but nevertheless, it is prevailing. It rules over the daytime hours. And from our vantage point, right, if you go out and you look up, the sun is high and above us. It parades across the sky every single day. There's not a day that the sun calls in sick, even if he's hidden behind our clouds, right? Have you ever been in a plane and on a cloudy day, and then all of a sudden you break through the barrier, and it's like, oh, it's blinding. It's still there, right? For months it might not appear to be there, but it's there, right? It's ruling. It's ruling over it. It's ruling language that God gives the words is memsalah and mashal. And you're going to see these words, ruling language. 
And what's interesting is God gives that type of dominion, that rulership to Adam to rule over the entire creation. Look at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and over the heavens and over the lives or the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God makes man in his image and then he hands over dominion to them to reflect his royal rule over the creation. The mission for Adam is to reflect God's image in the creation by exercising dominion over it and bringing order out of the chaos. The psalmist later on in biblical history knew this. That's why he writes in Psalm 115 verse 16, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. So just like God who created entities and then he names them, let there be light, you are called day. Our first parents, the first humans, were blessed by God and commissioned by God to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I know this is heavy and weighty, but track with it. God hands over dominion, and commissions them to subdue the creation. The word used here is the word kavash. Have you ever heard somebody say, you got to put the kavash on that? Yeah, you've heard that one? Yeah. It's a Hebrew word. What do they mean by that? If you need to put the kavash on something, it means you need to step in and take control over the situation. Humans were to put the kibosh on the land and the animals and every living thing. And in the next chapter, you know what we see Adam doing? He's actually even naming the animals. Much like God the creator king in Genesis 1. Your day, your night, your sun, your moon. This is, this is amazing stuff. And so we see ruling language attached to King Adam and Queen Eve as they are to subdue and have dominion over, quote, every living thing, and then expand the kingdom by being fruitful and multiplying. So far, so good. Not good, very good. The rest of chapter 2 is the amazing zoomed-in look at the intimate creation of Adam and Eve and the paradise that they were to rule over. It truly was heaven on earth in the garden with creation, with order, and with dominion. Now wouldn't that be awesome if it ended there? But chaos in God's ordered creation makes a brutal entrance when a serpent in the garden comes in deceit and messes with Eve and Adam's discernment by calling into question God's character. The serpent tricks the humans into thinking that God was somehow holding out of them because of one solitary prohibition that he had placed on them. Now, I don't think there's any magical ingredient in the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The purpose of the tree was to provide the humans with a choice. Will they love and serve willingly 
or will they rebel against him and reject the one prohibition that their creator king had given them? And sadly, listen, this is very important. Sadly, instead of subduing, right, exercising dominion over the serpent, the serpent exercises authority and dominion over them. Now they're under his subjugation, right? He's, he's, he's convinced them. He's, he's tricky. And instead of the humans putting the serpent under their feet and putting the kibosh on him, so to speak, they allow him to call the shots. And in so doing, they are saying, God, we don't think that you are qualified enough to be the rightful creator king anymore. In fact, God... We know better than you do. The fruit on the tree is food after all. Who is God to say that we can't eat it? The fruit on the tree after all is a delight to our eyes. Why not eat the fruit? And so Adam and Eve, by their disobedience, they actually forfeit their govern to rule over the creation. They hand the scepter, so to speak, to Satan. And ever since then, you can see the rulership of Satan in this world evidenced by all the pain and the heartache and the brokenness and the chaos that we see in our own hearts, in our own daily actions, and in the daily news. The counterfeit kingdom of Satan had arrived and was and still is in full swing. This is something that Jesus and Paul and other New Testament writers plainly identify in their writings. Paul tells the Ephesians that they used to actively be following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience in Ephesians 2 too, right? Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's kept them in deceit so that they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's the same tactic. And Jesus himself said right before that he was betrayed, in Luke chapter 22, verse 53, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. That word is excusia, which is ruling language. There is a dominion of darkness. This is the hour when darkness is reigning, is what Jesus says. And so the first humans who were set up as royalty, royally messed up and handed the ruling reins over to Satan... That's not good. Actually, that's very not good. How very not good is it? Well, you see it when we turn to chapter 4 of Genesis, where we're told a story about a brother killing his own brother. Talk about chaos. Instead of Cain ruling over his sinful, jealous desires, Cain is making the decision to be ruled by them so much so that he is willing to kill his own brother. Chaos and disorder, it sounds a lot like Satan, the usurper's role in the creation. Think about this. 
Cain was even warned specifically by God about this. God came to Cain and warned him, and he said that this would be the outcome if he didn't rule over his own passions. Look at this, Genesis 4-7. If you do well, Cain, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Don't take the bait. Sin is contrary to you. It will destroy you. And God graciously says, look, you must mashal over it. You must rule over it. Put it under your feet. But he doesn't. And he lets that sin and those desires rule him. That word here is the same word we read in Genesis 1.18 about the sun ruling over and prevailing over the day. Now, instead of mankind putting the serpent under their feet, the serpent is putting mankind under his feet. Sin is ruling over him. And this gives evidence to the reality that the human race was fallen and that we had forfeited our right to reign and were actually enslaved in the counterfeit kingdom of Satan. Do you hear this? Humans enslaved in the counterfeit kingdom of Satan. That's the depiction of the biblical authors, and it's the truth. And we see it evidenced everywhere. Not out there. I see it here. So this is a very sad state of affairs. And in just a few chapters, we see the depths of our depravity when we read Genesis 6-5. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every ouch, intention, ouch, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. From God's vantage point, that's what he sees when he looks at the hearts of people that were made in his image. That's not good. But even then, God was not done with us. He expresses every intention to restore our royalty status as he preserves humanity through Noah and eventually chooses a man named Abraham out of a pagan nation. There's nothing good in Abraham. He was pagan as all get out, as all of us. And yet God chooses him out of a pagan nation and says to him, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Now this is an amazing promise because if we read further on in Genesis, you would see that his wife Sarah was barren. Humanly speaking, it's impossible to bring a baby out of a barren womb. Honestly, almost as impossible as bringing a baby out of a womb of a virgin. But God doubles down on his promise to Abraham and then says to him and to Sarah, I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations, kings, plural, of peoples, plural, shall come from her. Through this promise, it becomes clear that God would bring about his saving reign through humanity and our kingly status, our king and queen status, our royalty status 
would be restored, but how? Hmm. And God repeats this promise to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in Genesis 35. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. This is mind-blowing to me. Jacob is renamed Israel, and now newly named Israel is commissioned with the same commission as Adam and Eve in the garden. Now this will blow your mind. The Hebrew word here for company can be translated as assembly or congregation. So think of the New Testament words synagogue or ecclesia. It's a gathering, it's an assembly, or a church. This means that the promise to Jacob can be translated as an assembly of the nations or a congregation of the nations or a church of the nations. This means that this promise about having kings come about is not just for ethnic Israel. This promise specifically is extending to some sort of multi-ethnic gathering of people under one corporate head. Hmm. And let's keep going and briefly skip across the Old Testament sightings of a future coming king who would come and rule in a right way as spelled out in Deuteronomy. The king was to write his own personalized copy of the law so that he might keep it perfectly. We read about it in Deuteronomy 17. And it, this copy of the law that he wrote down, the king shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and not just keeping them, but doing them. Not just holding on to this thing, but I'm going to actually do this thing. That his heart might not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So this king was to keep the law perfectly. Hmm. That sounds difficult. Because no human had ever done that before. But Balaam, the son of Beor, the non-Israelite seer whom the Moabites hired to curse the Israelites as they traveled from Egypt to the promised land, said, you know what, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And here's the ruling language. A star shall come out of Jacob... And a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. You're like, well, what's the big deal? Well, the people of Moab were God's enemies, right? And and they were enemies of God's people. And Balaam says, there's going to come a king who will mow them down. There will be a king that will come and exercise an ultimate kingship that will crush The enemies of God's people. Hmm. 
And then we think of Joshua. As he began the conquest of the land, Joshua, who's a ruler figure to lead a kingdom of people into a promised land. Hmm. What about the time of the judges? As it becomes increasingly clear seven times over that Israel is in desperate need of a wise human king to govern them and lead them into the battles. Because if they're left on their own, they turn into crooked and perverted people. Hmm. Joshua 21, 25 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Basically, the Israelites were craving the forbidden fruit everywhere and preferred it over obeying what the creator king had said. Let's do what's right in our own eyes. We don't have a king. We're king. And Israel starts to recognize this is not good, and so they And out of jealousy, honestly, they start to beg Samuel to anoint a king. And he does. And King Saul is introduced to the story, but King Saul leaves a lot to be desired because he also does what's right in his own eyes as he foolishly disobeys a direct commandment of God. We read about it in 1 Samuel 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. You didn't do the Deuteronomy 17 thing at all. You didn't keep the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So this is a very sad time for the nation. And Samuel is grief-stricken. And he's grieving, but God even then comes to him and says, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So everyone, hail King David, who was a shepherd from Bethlehem? Hmm. It's interesting because David was anointed twice to be the king. First in a private way, in the midst of his brothers. We read about that in 1 Samuel 16. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers in a private way, and then publicly by the nation as a whole in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And get this. The first thing that he does as king over God's people is complete the Canaanite conquest by driving out the Philistines and the Jebusites from Jerusalem, which was the city of God. You read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen, the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. Hmm. You got to track with this. I know this is weighty and theological. Here we have a picture of a king resting and exercising dominion over his kingdom after winning an epic battle. This is echoes of Eden. And this is a forecast of the future. Hmm. And it's in this season of life that David writes one of our favorite psalms in Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of Adam... The son of man, that you care for him. 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you crowned him with glory and honor, and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. So here we have a son of Adam, crowned with glory and honor, exercising mashal, which is the same word from Genesis 1 to mean dominion and rulership after he had put all things under his feet, including enemies. Hmm. This twice-anointed king of Israel resting and reigning over his kingdom foreshadows a greater son of Adam, a greater son of David who would one day be anointed privately on a cross, on a hill, with a sign hung over his head amidst his brothers, and then publicly, in a very triumphant way, when he would return to bring his kingdom in its fullness with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that he truly is the Messiah of God, who will bring an ultimate Sabbath day's rest to the people of God after crushing the enemies of God for the glory of God. Hmm. We have to stop here. There is so much more that we could trace out in the Old Testament about the kingdom of God, but we need to put the kibosh on this message. So why share all of this? Why the theological lecture? You lost me. I hope I didn't. Because the people in Jesus' day knew all of this history. They knew the theology a lot more thoroughly than what I just was able to describe to you in a short thumbnailed sketch of the Old Testament. They lived and they breathed this stuff. They had their hopes stimulated often, time and time again, longing, yearning, and waiting for the kingdom of God to arrive so they could experience freedom from their oppressors, the Romans. And Jesus shows up and says, The time is fulfilled. The king is at hand. Repent. Believe in the gospel. And they are all on board with this. But the kingdom that Jesus was bringing will far surpass their limited, short-sighted expectations of being liberated from the Romans. What Jesus was bringing was a more complete liberation to free us and them from our real enslavement to the counterfeit kingdom of Satan that we have willfully become a part of. Jesus came to liberate us and restore our royalty status back to us that we might image the creator king rightly. That which the first Adam forfeited The last Adam was reclaiming and restoring. So here's the question of the Old Testament. Who is this king? Who could possibly be this king who comes to undo the chaos of sin and restore to us our initial royalty status to govern and rule over even our own desires? Who might it be? Well, it will be a king who will bring about a redemptive reign that will progressively break into history one redeemed soul at a time to overthrow the reign of sin, death, and Satan so that creation can advance to its reclaimed and redeemed perfected state. This king will inaugurate his kingdom in Galilee, yes, and he will demonstrate that kingdom's power by his obedient life. 
His substitutionary sacrificial death, his remarkable resurrection, and his triumphant ascension into heaven itself. And any day now, his kingdom will be ultimately consummated when he comes again to usher in all of its fullness. Hmm. Well, who might fit that description? Someone please say it. There you go. Right. Who fits that description? It's King Jesus. And Mark says, Jesus from Nazareth, of all places, marched into Galilee and said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And so get this, through our repentance, And our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can have our royalty status restored to us as reclaimed and redeemed humans who can utilize the kingdom's power now as we refuse to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. You hear this? We can drive those out like a Canaanite conquest. Paul told the Romans 6.6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Through our union with King Jesus, we now have the capacity to rule over the sin that used to so easily rule over and slave us. Matthew 17, 26, Jesus says, the sons are free. We're exempt from the world's system. You're born again. You're new, a new creation. We're free. Paul told the Romans, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body for you to obey its passions. You can rule over that. And we now, by the Spirit indwelling within us, must put to death the deeds of the body so that we might live. He tells Titus, look, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, not the one to come. Now, the kingdom is here now. You can say no to that stuff. The grace of God has appeared, and our powers of discernment which eluded our first parents in the garden between good and evil, is progressively being restored to us. What had been lost by Adam was reclaimed by the second one. So Paul tells the Romans, I want you to be wise as to what's good and innocent as to what is evil. No human can do that on their own. And he says this, the first Adam failed to subdue the serpent and exercise authority over him. But the second Adam didn't. And through our union with King Jesus, Paul tells the Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. We can do that which we should have done in the first place. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, us. Amen? 
Paul tells the Colossians, look, God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. And finally, Paul tells Timothy this in 1 Timothy 2.12 or 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also sum basileu with him. We will reign with him. That's the kingdom of God in the scriptures. The king of kings has restored our royalty status as image bearers of the creator king. And through our works of subduing the serpent schemes under our feet, all of his enemies are being made into footstools. Upon which one day we will sit back and enjoy a seventh day Sabbath rest as we ready ourselves for a wedding feast that no eye has ever seen or ear has ever heard as Jesus brings his kingdom in its fullness to restore heaven and earth once again. That is the kingdom of God. And that is what is available for every single one of us. You can say no to your passions and desires, to the sin that so easily entangles, that your kingly, queenly, royalty status has been restored to you in King Jesus. Amen? And right now, he must reign until all of his enemies are made into his footstool, and that means sin does not have mastery over you. You say no. You put that under your feet. You put that in its right place because of the creator king. God, we are humbled by this reality 